you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us on this Friday. Hope your day's off to a good start. Coming up at 10 o'clock, it's Film Week. Tim Cogshell and Wade Major are with us. And you're going to want to hear what they have to say about the new Netflix streaming romantic comedy, You People. It's an interracial, interreligious couple played by Jonah Hill and Lauren London. Hill actually co-wrote it with the director of the movie, Kenya Barris. But the parents are played by Eddie Murphy, uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, David Duchovny, and uh, you're going to want to hear what our critics have to say about you people. That's coming up at 10 o'clock on Film Week. And later this hour, we talk about today, which kicks off the Disney Centennial, a whole series of events throughout the year. And of course, Disney which is an international cultural icon started right here by Walt Disney in Southern California. We're going to look at the history of Disney here. And I want to hear from you. If you feel a particularly strong attachment to Disney, I'd like to hear what that's about and and what Disney means to you as we kick off this centennial. But we begin with the three-night count of those living on the streets, living in their cars, living in encampments, the unsheltered population of Los Angeles County. The volunteers with the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, known as LASA, uh, went throughout Southern California, throughout L.A. County uh, on the last three nights. And joining us to talk about this effort is Emily Vaughn Henry, Deputy Chief Information Officer for LASA. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining us. We appreciate it. Good morning, Larry. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Let's talk about the scope of this, first of all. How many thousands of volunteers took part in the count? So we received confirmation this morning, 5,893, you know, almost 6,000 volunteers. In comparison to last year, we had 4,000 volunteers. So that's a great indicator that our community is very concerned about the humanitarian crisis in an unsheltered community throughout Los Angeles County. So they came out in support. So we do want to, my gratitude to all of our community members. Thank you very much for coming out and participating in the observation count. Well, and, and, and let me take this opportunity to invite those who did volunteer to be part of the count to join us. Uh, if you'd like to share your experiences with us, you can call us at 866-893-5722. 866-893-5722. You can also email what your experience was like at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and your first name. If you're an unsheltered person who was contacted by someone as a part of the count last night, I'd also be interested in hearing what that experience was like for you. How did you feel about people coming out, talking with you? 
you about your experience and being a part of that count. Again, we're at 866-893-5722. I'm sure you had a very late night last night with this. Yes. So, you know, we had a a team of individuals. Um, We um, typically, like said to my team, you know, we have to, this is the last night. Let's get out and get support. So, yeah, we got home around 2 a.m. in the morning. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for getting up early to join us on the program today. What sort of training uh, do do the volunteers get in advance of doing the count? So in advance of doing the count, um, this year we had an opportunity of offering in-person training in some of our community areas, but also trainings through Zoom. We also had pre-recorded videos on our our, our website. So how to download the app, how to, you know, validate your information on a dashboard. Um, For transparency, we made a concerted effort to ensure that we had a, a loss of staff person at each of our 162 plus deployment sites throughout Los Angeles County. And we wanted our community, we wanted to bring our community members in. We wanted them to feel comfortable with a new technology we were deploying this year. And so we did provide a lot of training. Yes, next year we have lessons learned, you know, improving yeah, year sure. over year. So next year we'd like to offer training in a in-person training in throughout of the Los Angeles County, hoping that, you know, we, you know, we can still mitigate, you know, COVID. So it's still there with us. So we do want, um, we, again, improving year over year and improving, you know, how we engage with our community around providing training. And um, with the use of this new app, was it at all glitchy? Did people seem to have enough mastery of it to, to be able to, to use it? There were some glitches um, specifically with our, you know, we, there's still the technology divide, you know, throughout our community. And so, yes, anytime you have new technology, there's always, you know, a comfort level. So what we made, we intentionally ensure that we allowed it enough time for when our volunteers came to the site to do training again with them. If they had not downloaded the app, we ensured that we had ample time to download the app with them. We were very patient, you know, made sure they were comfortable before they went out um, to, um, to Canvas for us throughout LA County. Again, with Nearly 6,000 Angelinos volunteering to be part of the count. I know a fair number of those are listening to us right now, and I'd like to hear about your experience just briefly. We're at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. I know you you were intending to have 8,000 was your hope. It's a huge county. Um how are how are you going to try and and build on this to to get a couple thousand more people? The one one of the strategies, and I do want to thank you know all of our our council um, district members and their staff, city and county members, and our providers. You know, we did a huge campaign. You know, asking for volunteers. I think every conference call I was on with a, a elected officials office, I would say, you know, please, you know, encourage your staff, you know, to come out and rally and support. And they did do that, and I think that really contributed to the increase in the numbers of volunteers that we saw. Again, you know, working with various, you know, businesses throughout LA County and just really making the homeless count, you know, a more, you know, intentional um, community, social community um, participation. Because if we really want to get to the true numbers of how many individuals are truly experiencing unsheltered homelessness, we need our community members to come out and help us identify our members. So do you you think with having nearly 6,000 instead of 8,000, that that probably had an effect on on getting a more accurate count? 
you know, remember it's a point in time. So last year we, you know, we had 4,000 volunteers. And from my perspective, um, we did in, in terms of we can only capture what we can see. And just for transparency, there's three parts of the count, you know, that goes into the numeration of the calculation. So we have the demographic survey, which is the first part. It's a, it consists of 50 questions that USC goes out with surveyors to collect information. And then we have the observation count, which is the three days. And then we have the HIC, which is called a housing inventory count. So you take these three data points together, we submit that to HUD, and then through the methodology, we get a number of, you know, these are the number of individuals that are experiencing homelessness throughout Los Angeles County. And when do we get that that final count released? So there are two things we're looking at this year, um, you know, working in thought partnership with our, you know, city and county officials. We would like to do a town hall um, um, session, you know, close to the end of February, early March. The goal is to create transparency throughout Los Angeles County. And one way to do that is share the numbers that we collected throughout the, the three nights with the caveat that it has not been validated by HUD, but we, for transparency, we want our community members to know, here's what we collected. You know, you know, this is an opportunity to ask questions, bring in our research partners throughout the city and say, you know, here's what the the numbers are telling us. What are your thoughts? You know, researchers, you know, like the Rand Corporation, the California Policy Lab and the Economic Development Group, just bringing individuals mm-hmm. together, the experts in these areas, because, you know, we cannot do this by ourselves, you know, LASA. So we need, you know, other, um, you know, experts to tell us, you know, and share the information, you know, create transparency and trust in the numbers that we're putting out there. So so there's there's is there a date though for that all to take place? So you know typically it's late spring, you okay. know, you know late spring, early summer is when the final so a few numbers, months down the yes. road. Um, yesterday we we talked about the Rand study that was done, which um, was a little different than the point in time yes. that you do it was all going back. I think it was twelve or so times over mm-hmm. the course of a year. It found a greater uh, level of homelessness than than what your point in time survey did for last year. Is there anything for LASA to learn from how RAND conducted its study that you, that you would look to incorporate in the future with yours? And again, you know, we're always, the goal is to always improve and learn over time. So the RAND Corporation, just for transparency, their um, count was a longitudinal uh, process. It was much longer than our three-day point in time. So the methodology will be completely different. And absolutely, we encourage RAND you know, to give us feedback in terms of how we're doing it, you know, what makes sense. I think we're at a place where, you know, the way we've been doing the methodology, does it make sense? So this is where we are bringing our experts in and saying, advise us. So you may change how you do it. Okay. Down the road, we may do yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're talking, uh, by the way, from LASA, the L.A. Homeless Services Authority of Los Angeles County, Emily Vaughn Henry, Deputy Chief Information Officer, uh, who was at the command center that they had last night, um, working with all of the volunteers, nearly 6,000 of them. Sinclair and Laguna Beach says during winter months, it seems like a lot of unsheltered people put their money together and book into motels, 10 to 12 to a room. Do those folks get counted so there's something called the the uh, housing inventory count which is the part of the the three count process that i mentioned um it, it will be part of if we know well just for transparency if um the individuals that are within that motel is part of one of our programs that we offer interim uh, programs then they will be counted as part of the homeless the housing inventory count 
piece of the count. It, they will not be part of the observation, what we're seeing out in the field. Okay, so they because they're included. housed. Yeah. So, and, but Sinclair sounds like this is not a formal like placement mm-hmm. through uh, an agency. This is people that just on their own pool their mm-hmm. money to do this. Right, and, and my heart goes out. You know, that individuals, you know, have to do that. Um, and again, if individuals, you know, need, you know, like Miss Sinclair and the fellow individuals at the motel, if they need support, feel uh, feel free to reach out, you know, to our outreach uh, services. And I'm happy to, you know, connect her. Uh, last night, I, I got an email from a listener uh, asking, did the volunteers canvas Walmart parking lots? I spent the night at one San Gabriel Valley Walmart where I've been sleeping for about two weeks. Each night, there are as many as three dozen others parked for the night, as well as a handful of repeat motorhomes. Many of these are regulars. We see each other in the restrooms. Many are single, older women. There are also a few older couples. Many are employed. Others were firmly middle class until recently. I was waiting all night for the volunteers to come, but we weren't counted. I fear that the numbers of actual unhoused persons will be much greater than those who were counted. This listener preferred that I not share Mm -hmm. their name, but um, but your thoughts about do are things like Walmart parking lots surveyed? So, so you know, we encourage our, our volunteers, you know, to, you know, what they see. So if, you know, volunteers are walking around and, you know, the, the Walmart parking lot, you know, we do go out and, you know, we try to survey as much as all of the parking lots, as much as that we see. So our volunteers can only report on what they see. And we do tell our volunteers to not engage with individuals because we do do a, a, a training on how to observe someone that experience in homelessness. If they're in a car, you do not knock on the, the windshield and certain things. Don't we disturb do, people. Yeah. yeah, we do say, you know, keep a distance. Um, so, again, I can't, um, you know, report on whether or not that parking structure was collected or not. Um, and, and San Gabriel and Santa Clarita and San Fernando Valley, we counted them on Tuesday night. All right. Um, we have another listener, Jack, in Los Angeles, who asks, is L.A. a homeless magnet? Yesterday, your guest from Rand said about a quarter of the homeless population was from out of state. My question is, how many are not originally from the city of Los Angeles? I recall a senior LASA employee and another well-informed uh, homeless advocate saying over half to two-thirds of the homeless were not from the city and that we were a place where others were, were left from other cities uh, uh, in the county in California uh, and other states. Um, the city is 40% of the overall population, but we have about two-thirds of those that are unsheltered. We're footing more than our fair share. Your response to Jack's point? So, you know, I appreciate Jack's point. Um, and for transparency, you know, our homeless management information system, which is HMIS, and that is where we track, you know, individuals that we you know, provide services to and engage. And if individuals choose to report and say, you know, I lived in this city, so that is the information we will enter into our HMI system. So we have an idea of where individuals are coming from and where they're going because we have moving, you know, moving dates, you know, moving locations and and move out. So, you know, I, I... from from my perspective, I, and I sympathize with our community, we hear loud and clear. It's something we hear repeatedly that individuals are coming in from different areas. So what would, you know, again, you know, we have, you know, some data, but uh, anecdotal data to say, you know, but again, if the individual does not share where they're coming from, it's really difficult for us to report. So we don't have a real accurate count, exactly. it sounds like, is what, what you're saying. We also have a question about when the count starts. 
um, because uh, for some uh, of the places, the count starts, I guess, as early as six o'clock when many of the volunteers might not be off work, things like that, um, where some of the other counts, I guess, start later when people would be more settled. I guess the trade-off is maybe they wouldn't be as visible. I don't know. But but anyway, how do you determine when volunteers start the count at night? Yeah, so each community, you know, have an opportunity to say when they want the count to start. So some community, we have something called closed sites. So closed sites, for example, you know, the city, I mean, Azusa is a closed site, which means that the police department does the count for them. So, I mean, they can start okay. at 6, they can start at 7. And But some of our other communities typically start at 8. We had one community um, this week start at 10 you know at nine o'clock mm-hmm. so it's it's based on the community in terms of when the community uh, partners would like to start the count in their various neighborhoods all right emily thank you so much in, uh, for coming in and talking about this particularly a night that was short of sleep for you as you were a part of the final night of the the point in time count of unsheltered angelinos we'll look forward to seeing the results and how that intersects with the services and shelter to be and housing to be provided thank you for being with us. Thank you very much, Larry. I appreciate your time today. Thank, Thank you. you. Emily Vaughn Henry, Deputy Chief Information Officer for LASA, the LA Homeless Services Authority, which uh, concluded its three night point in time count last night. It's Air Talk on KPCC coming up. Today marks the start of a year of centennial observances for Disney. I want to hear what Disney means to you. If you're someone who spends considerable amount of time uh, either at the parks or with Disney content or has strong feelings about Disney one way or the other, I'd like to hear from you at 866-893-5722. We'll be back in one minute. Classic Disney than When You Wish Upon a Star, written for the 1940 Pinocchio, originally performed by Cliff Edwards, who voiced Jiminy Cricket for the movie. The famous tune is now a symbol for Disney, even used in its opening fanfare for its films. It's Air Talk on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. We kick off a year's worth of centennial observances for Disney. The actual anniversary is October 16th. And uh, here's Walt Disney welcoming the crowd on the opening day of Disneyland, which, of course, came a number of years later, January 17th, 1955. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here age relives fond memories of the past. And here youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America with the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. 
right, there we go. Walt Disney at the start of Disneyland, courtesy of Disney Resort's YouTube channel. We're going to take a look at the history of Disney, as well as what it means to listeners. I'd like to hear from you if you feel a particular connection to Disney or the opposite. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts about it, what Disney represents, given its huge place, of course, here in Southern California, the center of its global cultural impact. Joining us is animation historian and critic, of course, for Film Week, Charles Solomon, who's written a number of books about Disney and its animation endeavors, including The Disney Princess, a celebration of art and creativity, and The Disney That Never Was. Charles, thank you so much. Uh, I know you've also been an advisor uh, on the museum. So just, you know, take us back to uh, the origin story here briefly. What brought Walt Disney to Southern California and led him to start his animation work here? Well, Walt had already been working in animation for some time, Larry, but the studio he started in Kansas City went broke. So he came to California Uh, This was the center of the film industry. He had actually hoped to be a live-action director. But he excelled at animation and stuck with it in what was originally the Disney Brothers. Uh, What makes Walt such an interesting figure is, like any genius, in some ways he's unknowable, but he's kind of the last person you would have picked to completely revolutionize an art form and to reinvent the uh, the amusement park. He was a complete autodidact. You know, he, he took some art classes, uh, but was not particularly well-educated. He was a very modest man. He had very few close friends. And everyone who knew him seems to have known a slightly different Walt. It's like he was a human Rorschach test. That's fascinating. Well, and it's, isn't it ironic that didn't he have a huge role in the start of CalArts, the school for someone who wasn't formally educated in the arts? Yes, but he was very interested in education, and he left CalArts a substantial amount in his will. And it was built on Chouinard, which had been one of the top art schools in the country where a number of his artists had gone and many of the teachers who had worked at his studio came from. And Mrs. Chouinard had been very you know, kind and friendly to uh, Walt when he was starting out, and he never forgot a favor. And when he discovered she'd been fleeced by accountants for many years, uh, he helped support the school and then rolled it and a music school together to form Cal Arts. And I know his uh, daughter, Diane, always said that had her father lived longer, she believed he would have been more involved in education as time went on. It was something that had become very important to him. Charles, there's there's so much emphasis on uh, Disney, the man's vision for, uh, you know, what would become Disneyland and and the expansion of the theme park portion of the business. But what was it about Walt as an animator that made his creations particularly successful? Well, part of it was that he recognized he wasn't a great animator, but that he was an excellent story editor. And so he could find people who could animate and draw better than he did, beginning with Ub Iwerks, who did the first animation of Mickey and Oswald Rabbit before that. 
but he had a way of drawing people to his vision. Uh, all the old animators have said that he would act out a piece of business and you would go back to your desk and try and figure out, well, how did he do that gesture? What, what made it so compelling? And I remember Roy Edward, his nephew, who had been so important in the renaissance of the company, said when he was a little boy, he had the chicken pox. And Walt came to see him and spent an hour sitting on his bed uh, telling him about Pinocchio that was in the works at the time. <laughs> and he said that he knows the movie. He's aware of what a splendid piece of work it was. But it was better when Walt told it. Wow, great anecdote. Charles Solomon, animation critic and historian, author of several books on Walt Disney Animation. Again, I'd like to hear from you what Disney represents to you as today marks the kickoff of a year-long centennial for Disney. Anna in Glendale, you're on Air Talk. Hi, yeah, so Disney meets the American dream to me. I'm a former cast member at the park, and it inspired me to work in animation today. That's great. So it's had a huge effect on, on your life. And did that start in childhood for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I loved watching all the movies with my family and um, going to the park. And, um, yeah, it was my dream to uh, one day work for the company, which I, I was able to do previously, too. Now, Anna, sometimes when you get up close and you see uh, how the sausage is made, so to speak, it can kind of intrude on that, that um image that you have of it when you became a cast member as they call employees at uh, disney what did it influence your feelings about the company uh well i mean it definitely gives you a lot of tough skin um working there and um working a lot of long hours but it was definitely really inspiring because there are a lot of people like me who moved and sacrificed and saved a lot to move to la and um, just spread that um, the theme of, you know, um, being family friendly and, and magic to everybody. So I, I still enjoyed it. Anna, thanks so much. That's Anna and Glendale kicking off our listener uh, input. And again, if you uh, have uh, worked for Disney at all, as she has, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts. If you're just someone for whom Disney is a big part of your life, a major part of the entertainment you consume, uh, or uh, Disneyland and other Disney parks or places that are a big part of your life, I'd like to hear about that. And if you also have a critique of Disney you'd like to share, feel free. We're at 866 KPECC. Emmeline in Irvine said, I grew up going to Disneyland. I loved it. Now with how expensive the park is, I can't share it with my children. That's Emmeline in Irvine. In addition to Charles Solomon, we're joined by Cal State Fullerton Professor Andy Stein. She created and teaches the course Deconstructing Disney, and she's the author of Why We Love Disney, The Power of the Disney Brand. Professor Stein, very good to have you with us this morning. Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So uh, share with us how Disney, particularly in the early years, went from being this animation studio into the multifaceted entertainment-oriented company. I think a lot of it was the vision of Walt Disney himself. He was never satisfied with just 
being a great animator and having all of these wonderful films. He always saw more in the future. And he was constantly experimenting. Even when uh, when the Mickey Mouse cartoons were successful, he wanted to do a full-length animated feature. And that's how Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs came about. And that then expanded into more of the films that we're familiar with today, the classic Disney animated films. And then he had this vision for the theme park, and he wanted to take these characters and bring them to life and bring the stories to life that he had created and make a place where families could enjoy these stories in a 3D environment. So he was constantly looking ahead. And even right before he died, he envisioned a new version of the Disney theme park experience in Florida. And he had bought all this land to try and build something on the East Coast that would expand upon what he had developed on the West Coast. Well, and um, one of the things I've heard, and and Professor, you can uh, share if this accurate, that, you know, Disney looked at the kinds of, of attractions that were similar to theme parks and, you know, at places like Coney Island or uh, the Pike in Long Beach that, um, you know, were not consistently family friendly, let's say. Right, right. Was that sort of, you know, was, was that one of the major animating things is there needs to be this kind of an entertainment venue that is squeaky clean? Absolutely. He was, you know, theme parks at the time were very much on the decline because they had been in their heyday in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. But by the 1950s, people weren't going out to theme parks. People were staying home and watching television. And so he needed to come up with a concept that was going to be very different from the traditional theme park. He was influenced by Tivoli Gardens in in Copenhagen and in the environment, the beautiful floral environment that, uh, that that theme park had. But he wanted to create something that was for families, specifically for families and not just for kids. That was his motivation mm-hmm. in creating Disneyland. And and so he was determined to make this stand out from the, the traditional amusement parks that, that populated the United States. And he really set the standard. I mean, the theme parks that we know today can all be credited to Walt Disney's vision of what a modern day theme park should be. Stephanie and Los Feliz, good to have you with us on Air Talk. For having me. Um, I just wanted to say I don't consider myself a particular Disney file at all. Um, I grew up in Southern California, so we always went. But um, interestingly enough, two of my brothers worked there giving VIP tours. They're now both uh, have passed away. But also this last November, um, we decided to take the kids out of school and just go one day to Disney. And later that afternoon, I got a call that my mom passed away suddenly from a heart attack. Oh, gosh. We ended up going to Disneyland because, truthfully, I couldn't think of a better place to be surrounded by humanity and all of the mothering that was happening around me. And just it, it had so many memories. So now, oddly, I feel very connected to Disneyland because I have such strong memories of people who are now gone associated with the park. 
Stephanie, what a what a wonderful experience to share. Thank you for for sharing that. And and I get that how it could be so comforting at a time when you have such a sudden loss of of your mom. Stephanie, thank you so much. We're at eight six six eight nine three KPECC. Anna of Burbank says, "I was a Disney employee back in nineteen eighty eight. We had a notepad next to the phone in the office, and it had a picture of a baby duck, and it said." Put on a smile in your voice. Anna, thank you. And Veronica in Irvine says, I've been an annual pass holder for 28 consecutive years. I maintained it even when I lived out of state because I love Disneyland so much. 866-893-KPECC. We'll continue our conversation with Cal State Fullerton professor Andy Stein, who teaches the course Deconstructing Disney. And uh, I think she's traveled to every one of the Disney parks around the world. And Charles Solomon, our Film Week critic, also an authority on Disney who's written a number of books about Disney animation. All right, we are going to be listening now to Un Poco Loco from Coco, the 2017 Disney Pixar film. We'll be back with more on Air Talk in 90 seconds. We don't talk about Bruno, no, no, no. We don't talk about Bruno. But it was my wedding day. It was my wedding day. We were getting ready and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. Huge hit from the 2021 film Encanto. We don't talk about Bruno, Disney Pixar film. It's Air Talk on KPECC. Today marks the kickoff of a centennial uh, observation of uh, Disney and, and what the company means here in Southern California and globally as well. I'd like to hear from you what Disney means to you, either positively or negatively. We're joined by Professor from Cal State Fullerton, where she teaches the class uh, Deconstructing Disney, Professor Andy Stein and Charles Solomon, noted animation authority. Let's talk with Joe in Westwood. You're on Air Talk. Hi, good morning, Larry, and good morning to your guests. Uh, Thanks for taking this call. Uh, The family lore in my family is that my uncle, David, was a Disney animator in the 40s and was actually involved in the the, um, Seven Dwarfs uh, cartoon and with the... um, other ones dealing with the early days of Disney. And he, uh, and I've seen some of his earliest sketches, pencil sketches, and they're wonderful. But my uncle was Jewish, and he was also a labor organizer. And Walt Disney testified in front of the HUAC, uh, the House on American Activities Committee, that my uncle was a communist. Uh, I don't know if he was or was not, but that was the end of my uncle's career in the United States. And he then took his family to Europe where he uh, continued its animation career and actually passed away, but is a member of the Animation Hall of Fame. Would you please share your uncle's name with us, Joe? Yeah, it was, sure, of course. It was David Hilberman. David Hilberman? And uh, Hilberman, yes. All right. And you and I have met before, Larry, so it's nice to hear your voice. Yeah, nice to have you on. Um, As to to, uh, your guests, I'm curious as to whether that portion of my family lore 
is indeed consistent with some of the Disney history. Uh, and Charles, you want to start with, the, I mean, first of all, the issue, and there was labor strife, of course, at Disney in those years Joe was talking about. But secondly, about, uh, and, and we've, we've heard this claim, that uh, Walt was himself anti-Semitic. Okay, the Walt as anti-Semitic simply isn't true. A great many of his key artists were Jewish, and I think uh, Dick Humor summed them up correctly when he said, I think Walt would have hired the devil himself if he were a good enough animator. But Dave Hilberman uh, was a layout artist and one of the people involved in the great Disney strike of 1941 that was very bitterly fought. Decades later, the artists on the various sides still um, held grudges. Uh, Walt did testify as a friendly witness before the Un-American Activities Committee, which he later um, said he regretted doing, that he thought it was a mistake. Uh, your caller's uh, grandfather, was it? Uh, also went on to become one of the founders it's of EPA, the studio that would revolutionize the look of animation in this country. So, yeah. yes, it's true that he was... Uh, an important artist at Disney. A lot of the young artists there were very liberal. They were art school graduates. They were uh, union activists. And the, the strike was a very, very decisive moment that, as I say, many of them never got over. Uh, art Babbitt, another one of the leaders, Walt himself. It's a real watershed in the history of American animation. Joe, I really appreciate your call about your uncle, David Hilberman. Thank you so much. Uh, Professor Stein, you want to comment uh, particularly on this issue about um, the strike at Disney and and the perception of Walt in, in terms of his you know, hostility to organized labor? Yeah, the strike uh, really took a toll on Walt Disney and on the company itself because he was convinced that the, the organizer of the strike were communists and that they were out to dismantle the family atmosphere that they had at uh, in in the Walt Disney Company, and he felt that his a lot of his employees were betraying him by wanting to organize into unions, and he held on to that that animosity, I guess, towards uh, towards the strikers. Uh, for the rest of his career and it changed the working environment at the Disney studio. It, it made it a much more detached place to work. It wasn't so much the the family atmosphere anymore. And I think that may have been what motivated him to be willing to testify uh, during the the hearings uh, and reveal the names of animators who he thought were communists. And I don't, I don't want to take our, our, uh, uh, whole time on uh, the strike and the labor issue, but it is a huge part of Disney oh, yeah. history. And Paul in Long Beach, I understand your father worked for Disney back at the the time of the strike. Uh, yeah, Larry, uh, he started he started as a rotoscoper, and he he uh, worked his way up to doing backgrounds, and he worked on uh, such luminary movies as uh, Snow White and Bambi, uh, and he did backgrounds on Fantasia. What's your father's name? Ed Levitt, L-E-V-I-T-T. Great. Just want to make sure we give him credit for that work. And yeah. and he was he was go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to ask. So um, was he one of the striking animators? 
Yes, he was very active. He was, I would classify more as a, being a socialist politically, and he was very, very active. He knew, he knew people like Art Babbitt, uh, worked with him very carefully on a, you know, daily basis. Um, and yes, he, he was there. And the stories that I was growing up with, he left to Disney and went to the Marine Corps and then ultimately, uh, you know, made his way through the animation business to retirement. Uh, but the, he was always, you know, very, very negative toward the Disney company and the Disney Foundation. And um, we never went to Disneyland. Um, wow. You know, even when I was growing up, it was like when we took a child to took our daughter to Disneyland. Like, well, are we really doing the right thing here? Because all of that, all of the, all of the stories and the uh, the animosity toward yeah. Disney coming from my father was very, very uh, uh, built in. Paul, I really appreciate your call. Charles, just a, you know, a quick thought on Paul talking about, you know, the lasting multi-generational impact of the rankers surrounding the strike. Oh, yeah. I mean, I knew when some of the former people on either side were still long past retirement age, they wouldn't have lunch together or you couldn't seat them together at the Annie uh, banquet because they still held such a grudge. The problem with the studio and as the professors alluded to, it was very familial. It was a benevolent monarchy. And things like promotions and raises and bonuses were all dependent on Walt's favor. There was no structure to that. And if Walt saw your work and liked it, you earned very, very good money and got huge bonuses and were very well treated. But there was no organization or structure to that that system of rewards and one of the things the strike brought about was more consideration for things like seniority and more formal reviews and so forth but uh it was again a, a social and artistic um divide it's Air Talk on KPCC, animation historian and critic, author Charles Solomon, author of a number of books about Disney animation. Uh, he's the guy when it comes to Disney animation and its history. And we're so pleased to have with us from Cal State Fullerton, Professor Andy Stein, author of Why We Love Disney, The Power of the Disney Brand. She also created and teaches the course Deconstructing Disney. And I don't have to tell you what this song is. What morning? you looking for under the sea under the sea darling it's better down where it's wetter take it from me more talk about disney in this centennial year for the company when we're back in one minute insisted we have theme for the incredibles and <laughs> we have disney music michael giacchino's incredible score for the 2004 brad bird directed and written a film it's air talk on kpcc film week is coming up in just about 10 minutes and you really want to hear what our critics have to say about close a belgian film that's been oscar nominated in the best international film category it was also a big winner at the Cannes film festival and the netflix streaming romance 
romantic comedy, You People, with quite the ensemble cast. You'll definitely want to hear what Tim Cogshell and Wade Major have to say about the movies this week in just a few minutes. And I also just want to make sure uh, you're aware, coming up at 11 o'clock, right after Film Week, on NPR's Here and Now, Deepa Fernandez speaks with one of the attorneys representing the family of Tyree Nichols, who was beaten to death by five Memphis police officers after a traffic stop. Uh, murder charges have been filed in that case, and the release of the video of the incident is expected to be released later today. So there'll be extensive NPR coverage throughout the day, including on Here and Now, coming up at 11 o'clock. We're talking about Disney's centennial. Uh, Joellen in Long Beach says, I used to take my son every New Year's Day, starting when he was about 18 months old. Fewer people went that day, and we get front row first in line. We did it for years. I appreciate what Walt Disney brought to our culture. I'm so fond of the memories. Mark in uh, Forest Falls in the San Bernardino Mountains says, I lived close to Disneyland uh, as a child in the city of Orange in the 1950s. My strongest memory is watching the fireworks from our two-story house. My sister-in-law worked the ice cream shop at Disneyland, too. Mark, thank you very much. And Charles in Arcadia says, if Walt was alive today, he'd be rolling in his grave. A lot of practices changed with Disney's death, and I don't like the corporatization that's happened. That's Charles in Arcadia. Professor Andy Stein of Cal State Fullerton. I think Charles speaks for you know a number of people who you don't really see the Disney magic in the company today. Absolutely. I think uh, there are many longtime Disney fans who just shake their heads at what they call the Disney greed and and how the the company has been so focused on its profits as opposed to its products. And I think Disney is not an exception in this regard. There are many companies that have evolved over the years, but I think so many people – expect more from Disney because of the values that it was built on. And they expect the the magic to continue, that Walt's legacy should continue uh, in the practices of the company. And I can see that perspective, but I also have to remind people sometimes that Disney is a business. The bottom line is Disney is a business and it does need to sustain a profit. And as we saw with the recent removal of Bob Chapek and the reinstatement of Bob Iger, the stockholders weren't happy with the profits uh, and they decided it was time to make a change. But, but it is astonishing when you, when you see the cost of going to a Disney park or taking a Disney cruise, staying at a Disney hotel compared to other forms of entertainment, it does make you shake your head and go, how does this, continue but but people are willing to pay it and that i think is how it continues people complain about the price that co- they complain about the costs every time disney raises its prices but then they begrudgingly hand over their money and they go to disneyland and i think that's why it's been able to continue uh barry in claremont good to have you with us i understand your grandfather had a very pivotal role with fantasia oh uh, yeah Am I on? Yes, you are. That's why I'm talking to you, Barry. Okay. Go right ahead. Yeah. Uh, I'm the John Fogarty bathroom on the right guy. Um, he created the cubicle system of recording microphones, where you put a microphone in cubicles, which is still used today 
It was created for Fantasia to record the Philadelphia Orchestra because they didn't know about microphones bleeding into each other in those days. Wow. So that's a system they still use today. He created it for Fantasia. Wow. And my, yeah, I'm very proud of that. Thank you. His name was Harold Honore. Harold Honore. Charles. Mother, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Barry. My mother is, my mother is 92. She's still here. And she was in the first audience to ever see Snow White. It was for the children of the studio. And Walt was wearing a big chef's toque on his head and a white apron with Mickey Mouse on the apron. And he was scooping up ice cream for all the kids in the studio. Oh, my gosh, Barry. What a what a, a great experience. Uh, Charles, quick, uh, quick thought on that. And and Fantasia, of course, which was a revolutionary film. Well, yes. One of the things about the Disney films is they were not only at the cutting edge of animation at the time, they were at the cutting edge of movie making. And Fantasia, with its multi-track system, that was the first time that you had directional stereo in a movie. When the Stegosaurus dies in the Rite of Spring, the drum roll followed its tail as it fell across. And no one had experienced anything like that before, because uh, going back to what uh, the professor was saying, Disney always said, give the people uh, the best and they'll reward you. And so he was constantly pushing to do what was new, what was different, what could revolutionize uh, the experience for the audience. Tad in Redondo Beach, I understand you work the graveyard shift at Disneyland. What's that like? Yeah, it, it really is amazing. But to me, the most magical part of, of being a cast member of Third Shift is that I'm coming into work. I get to see the faces of people that have spent the day you know, running around at night, uh, lining up at Haunted Mansion, just seeing all that as I'm walking into work uh, really is, kind of supercharges me. And then the flip side of that coin, as, I, as I'm leaving, seeing people kind of rush up Main Street and go up to the ropes at the different lands, the expectation on the little kids' faces uh, about the day that they're going to have. Oh, it's, wow. uh, it's a, it really is a wonderful place uh, for me. Uh, as a cast member to, to work. Tad, what do you what do you do there at Disneyland? Uh, I'm a firefighter there. All right. I cause... spent 34 years as a firefighter paramedic, and when I retired, um, they have an incredible group of guys uh, that work there that uh, help uh, protect the magic. That's great. Tad, thank you. And I have to say, that experience when you're leaving Disneyland and either it's late at night if they're open late or in that, you know, just after sunset if there's an earlier closure, that is, it's a wonderful feeling. As you say, everybody's sort of worn out and and smiles on their faces. Uh, Tad, I appreciate it very much uh, in Redondo Beach. I want to thank our guest, Charles Solomon, Film Week critic, author of The Disney Princess, A Celebration of Art and Creativity, as well as The Disney That Never Was and other books. And our thanks to Cal State Fullerton professor Andy Stein. She teaches the course Deconstructing Disney and is author of Why We Love Disney, The Power of the Disney Brand, Disney Today, launching its uh, year-long centennial of the company. We leave you with, of course, this classic and the late Angela Lansbury. Film Week is next.
Welcome to Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. We're joined this week by critics Wade Major of Synagogues.com and Tim Cogshell, his colleague at Synagogues, and also with Alt Film Guide. We begin with the film Close. The Belgian movie is Oscar-nominated in the Best International Film category. The film directed by Lucas Daunt, who also co-wrote the screenplay. Tim, please start us on Close. Yeah, 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 yeah. A very, very popular film that I appreciate more than I actually like. Loosely guided, inspired by this book called The Deep Secrets of Boys, Friendships, uh, Crisis and Connection, which is about boys and the friendships that they form when they're very, very young. The boys in this film, uh, uh, the film is not about the book, but the boys in this film are 13 years old. And they live in this sort of uh, rural, suburban, Belgian uh, farming town. And they have this very, very, very close friendships, beautifully captured uh, by the director. These these little boys running through these fields where everybody's picking flowers and they go to school and they hang out and they play soccer. Uh, and, and, and they plainly have this very intimate relationship. One boy hangs out at the the other boy's house all the time. Now, uh, without giving anything thing away, we end up in a situation where only uh, only one of the boys are left in the film, and we watch very closely as we see this boy deal with um, uh, uh, being lonely now that he has lost this extremely intimate relationship and feeling somewhat responsible for what happened in the relationship. This movie has all things in common with Moonlight. I suppose perhaps some things in common, even with "Call Me by Your Name." Uh, the, the, the young boys are plainly are plainly are plainly gay and, and, and sort of dealing with that that as they as they come along. Um, to to me, if the film just dealt with that and it didn't take the dramatic license with what actually happens in the film, which I'm not going to give away, it would be a much more interesting film because I think it would be much more true. Um, because it does go where it goes, it heightens the dramatic tension in a way that I think is just less authentic than it ought to be. Close is the film we're talking about from Belgium. What did you think, Wade? Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with that. I, I, I do respect it more than I like it. Uh, you know, Lucas Daunt, the director, who's kind of one of the, he's 31, he's kind of one of the hot up-and-coming European talents, and he is very talented. I mean, the performances are beautiful, and the filmmaking is very good. He's clearly inspired by the Dardenne brothers, who, you know, have, who are also Belgian, paved the way for that particular kind of Franco-Belgian filmmaking, very neorealistic and, and very naturalistic. Um, but it, it, it is a, it is a contrived premise that I just can't get past. You know, I, I don't think, I, I'm going to disagree a little bit. I don't think that it suggests that these boys are gay and dealing with some kind of, of latent homosexuality. I think it, it wants you to wonder, well, maybe they're just really, really close friends. Maybe it's an unusual friendship. You know, it tries to sort of pull those strings. And the thing is, from the very beginning, uh, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, I've lived in Europe. There are no two boys and there is no friendship like this anywhere on planet Earth. He has fabricated a a completely unnatural relationship and completely unnatural characters purely to try to force a dramatic contrivance. And, And I couldn't, I could not believe that any of this was real. It was, it felt filmmaker manufactured to me. And it's sad because he actually could have created something that would have worked for me. But it, it, in this case, it just, I felt the filmmaker just keeping his arms a little bit too tightly around the material. Yeah. And Tim, you see it similarly? Oh, well, yeah. I, like, literally, I think we're actually, we're actually agreeing. I mean, I, I did intimate that thing about a possible home. But yes, that's what's going on here. There's a thing that this filmmaker wants to say, and he's going to say it through these kids, no matter what. 
and and you feel that oh, as, yes. as a viewer of it. Close yeah. is the film from filmmaker Lucas Dant, who co-wrote the screenplay. Uh, the film's rated PG-13. It's in French, Flemish, and Dutch with English subtitles. Winner of the Grand Jury Prize at Cannes and nominated for Best International Film uh, for the Oscars. Uh, the film can be seen at AMC's The Grove and AMC's Century City Theatres. The romantic comedy You People stars Jonah Hill and Lauren London. Films directed by Kenya Barris, who co-wrote it with Jonah Hill. Wade, what'd you think of You People? I laughed. I just watched this last night. I, I got to it just the day before film week. I, I have not laughed this hard in years since pre-pandemic. Wow. I needed these laughs. I think everyone needs these laughs. You know, this is this is Kenya Barris at his just cutting best. He's taken Every difficult conversation about race and religion that no one has wanted to have for a very long time, especially the last two years, and he just rams it into a full-throated comedy, and he just lets this, he lets the cast just go all the way with it. What he and Jonah Hill have written is hilarious. So the premise is kind of like, uh, uh, guess, guess who's coming to dinner for That's this generation? Like, yeah. Yes. So Jonah, Jonah Hill is Jewish, but, you know, kind of not Jewish enough for his family. And Lauren London is, you know, she she comes from a black Muslim family, but she's, you know, she's she's a little bit more progressive. And she'll, she, they meet cute, they wind up dating, they decide they're going to get married, but their families are a problem. And Eddie Murphy and Neil Long are her parents, and David Duchovny and Julia Louis-Dreyfus are, are oh, his parents. Yes. And, you know, it, it just, where it goes is so cathartic, and it is so wonderful, and I'm almost inclined to say, I'm going to overreach here, that this made to, if more enough people see this, this could do more for race relations than anything in this country since the Civil Rights Act. You people is the romantic comedy. Tim, what do you think? It, it's, it's, it's jungle fever meets, look who's coming to dinner, meets, meet the parents, meet, meet the flockers and then they all go to the barbershop <laughs> literally they go to the barbershop and, 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 and every conversation that's ever been had in any one of those films is had in this movie all the stuff that folks sit around here's the thing um jonah hill and kenya berry so like this is jonah uh, and the symbol and as opposed to and if you see uh with the writer's guild they put and a and d that means that the two writers wrote separately i wrote something and then you wrote something but when you see that 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 and yeah, symbol, and, it yeah. means that they wrote it together that jonah and kenya were sitting across from each other writing jokes you say something i say something if you said oh, this what would so i good. say i'd say that and i really would say that and that's what the characters in this film say they say the things that people actually eddie murphy is playing this so straight oh so so straight and he is hysterical (laughs) just hysterical anyway it's 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 so funny and i don't know if it'll change racial relations but it made me laugh you know david duchovny has maybe a dozen lines in this thing but every single one of them drops like just a gold brick it and it's it's i've never seen duchovny be this funny and he's making all these stupid faces i'm sorry he's funny he is really funny funny. yeah yeah Yeah. he's just so funny we're talking about the romantic comedy You People, Jonah Hill and Lauren London, and a great cast supporting them. Kenya Barris directed and co-wrote it with Jonah Hill. It's rated R. Uh, you can see it streaming on Netflix or in theaters at the IPIC in Westwood and the Harkins Theater in Cerritos. The documentary Pamela, A Love Story, tells the story of Pamela Anderson's life. Ryan White directed the doc. Tim. Yeah, yeah, Ryan White. Good night, Oppie, and a few other things uh, 
love from Ryan. This is this is present day Pamela Anderson uh, all over this movie, kind of sitting there in this sort of flowing white uh, gown like thing with no makeup on, uh, roaming around her her little farm with her mom in Canada. And the film is about her, and she's in it a lot. She's in control. And, and, and she's very forthcoming, and she tells us a lot of stuff. There's a whole lot of, I didn't know that in this film, but she is in control here. And we learned from the film that that hasn't been true for most of her life, for a good chunk of her life. And right now, she has this book coming out, and of course, this is on the heels of that series uh, that was out there. And much of this is about her getting out in front of, or uh, all of that. Responding and, to the dramatic series, and, right? And, and telling it her way. And I appreciate all of that, but you have to remember that she's in control. And she's telling it her way. And she does go into a great movie. A lot of footage of her uh, as, a, as a young girl all the way back in Canada. Her father was an alcoholic. She was uh, molested as a, very, as a very young child. All kinds of, I did not know that's about Pamela. Pamela Anderson is a consequential figure in, in the cultural zeitgeist of America the last 30 years. She absolutely is. We can you know, make fun of it if you want to. But she's a, she's a consequential figure. And, uh, and, and I, I think this movie sort of tells us why. Wait, what do you think of Pamela, a love story? I, I liked it. I, I didn't feel that it was comprehensive, though. I mean, what I like about it, and, and Tim's right, she is a consequential figure. She is probably quite literally the last pinup and maybe the last pinup of all time. I mean, you can go all the way back to Betty Grable and, and you know, she she's in that tradition, uh, Farrah Fawcett, you know, the, 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 the poster girls. We don't really have that anymore. That's disappeared from the culture. And in, in the Internet era and the Me Too era, you know, there, there's a lot going on that just makes that obsolete. Maybe it'll come back in some kind of, you know, cultural uh, 180. But if for now, it's a terminal point. So she does represent a turning point in the culture. But, I, I you know, it, it's what's troubling to me is that they they do let her control this documentary. They went, they interviewed her. She is as forthcoming as she can be. She talks about reclaiming my sexuality and all of this and, you know, being in control. But it does seem to me that she's still not really in control, That they're, that she is still chasing her her dream she's still chasing her grail she's still trying to recapture something that she thinks that she lost when she was when she was raped as a, as a young girl which is a horribly tragic thing when she recounts it but i i do feel like we're not getting deep enough and uh it shows you where they can go but it just doesn't go there we're talking about Pamela, a love story, the uh, biographical documentary on Pamela Anderson, Ryan White, the director. It's rated TVMA and is streaming on Netflix starting next Tuesday. The documentary that takes us to Vietnam, Children of the Mist, is directed by Hale Diem, uh, and the film is unrated. Wade? It's a very, very good documentary. Uh, Here also, though, I I kind of wanted a little more. I'm just not sure that they could have given us more. You know, we we know so little, for the most part, as Americans about the the Hmong people in in Vietnam. We know that a lot of them worked with, you know, American soldiers. They had to flee. There was a huge refugee uh, exodus of them. And mostly what people know is from the Clint Eastwood film (laughs) Gran Torino. Uh, where that he really kind of lets he cast non-actors from that community and and let them sort of represent themselves and and that was for a lot of us was the first initiation into wow this is this really interesting kind of uh, small ethnic group from Vietnam that lived on the margins and has all of these additional issues and so what we what we have here they dive right into the those who still exist and still live in the mountains 
of Vietnam where child weddings are a thing and, you know, a lot of these sort of arcane tribal practices have not been wiped out because they do live so separate and so apart from the rest of the culture. And this 12-year-old girl wants no part of it. She wants to be a modern girl. She wants to, you know, grow up. She wants to say whether or not she gets married and at what age. And so you, you get into this culture clash, which is really, really interesting and it's very compelling and it's fly-on-the-wall stuff. It's really, really intimate fly-on-the-wall stuff. But at no point does it really ever tell us who are these people and what sets them apart. And I kind of felt like it needed that to go the extra level. We have a significant Hmong community in Long Beach here in Southern yes. California yeah. as well. Tim, what did you think of Children of the Mist? Yeah, the, the film is about the thing itself. Generally speaking, around the age of 14, these young girls are married off. Uh, these sort of, uh, uh, they call these bride kidnapping things and uh, money is paid and uh, commitments are made and, and the older women uh, of the community are all for it and, some, and, and very often these young girls are for forced into it. We're at a generation now, and that's what this film is about, this generation, uh, which has decided we are not doing this anymore. Uh, her older sister uh, you know, went along with it, and, and it was just, but she's a, she's 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 a big solid no on this. It's it's difficult though to be ex- because you can get very judgmental about these things. Fourteen year old girls being married off. It isn't that long ago in America before we get on our high horses here that girls fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen uh, were getting married very ordinary, narrowly in the United States of America. That hasn't been that long ago. My mother was married when she was sixteen. So so I uh, while I understand that this is problematic, and, and these young girls need to have their own agency i don't want us to get all up on our high horses uh because you know um uh, don't be so judgmental all right the film is children of the mist the documentary uh that's in vietnam it's unrated it's in Hmong and vietnamese with english subtitles it was shortlisted uh under the documentary category for the academy awards but was not one of the five uh ultimate nominees children of the mist uh is uh at uh, lemley's claremont as well as their glendale and monica film center uh it'll be uh, starting there next tuesday the third it's Film Week on KPCC. I'm joined by critics Tim Cogshell and Wade Major. And Tim and Wade, along with all of our other critics, are going to be on stage at the historic Orpheum Theater on Broadway in downtown Los Angeles coming up Sunday afternoon, March 5th, for our 21st annual, that's right, 21st annual Film Week Academy Awards preview. Our critics are going to tell us all about the Oscar nominees in the major categories. We'll watch clips of the Best Picture nominees. It'll be a great time. If you've never been to our Oscar preview, make this your year when you come and join us. Tickets are available at las.com slash events Sunday afternoon, March 5th, exactly a week before the Oscars are handed out. Join us for the Academy Awards preview. Back in a minute. Film Week, I'm Larry Mantle with critics Wade Major and Tim Cogshell. It's a week for a number of documentaries, and next up is The Quiet Epidemic, directed by Winslow Crane Murdoch and Lindsay Keyes. Uh, it's about chronic Lyme disease. Tim, what do you think of The Quiet Epidemic? Well, it's a very important film, and it's about whether or not there is such a thing as chronic Lyme disease. There's Lyme disease. People yeah. get Lyme disease, ticks, all that kind of kind of thing. Uh, it was a big thing when I was growing up in the, in the Midwest. Chronic Lyme disease, there is a debate, however, 
as to whether or not that actually exists. And it's um, sort of like chronic fatigue syndrome some years ago. These people who... Still have, is now. Chronic is. fatigue is still something that people who, who suffer from it uh, feel they can't get people to take it seriously. And we are in the exact same situation here. And, and, and what we have are a, a few families, particularly this father with his young daughter, 15 years old, who was bitten by a tick when she was nine years old and started to go downhill and hill from there. Uh, we have a doctor uh, who also uh, finds himself feeling as though he has chronic Lyme disease. And then we have all of these people on the other side, most of whom are not in this film except by um, uh, videotape, but they're not actually interviewed for the film, the folks on the other side. So I appreciate that the filmmakers tried to bring them in, but they didn't want to participate. Um, so the folks that we have uh, advocating here are journalists and, and, and the other folks that I told you about. They're all pro-believing uh, in this thing called chronic Lyme disease and ways, and ways to treat it. Um, I wish that some of the folks from the other side would have participated in the film. But as it is, uh, this is what we have. All right. We're talking about the quiet epidemic, Wade. Yeah, I, I, I you know, every time we kind of get into these these films on this show, I talk about advocacy cinema and how I, you know, I always I wish that they they balanced it and gave us both sides. And and these filmmakers really did try to do that. It's and they and they it's not a case where it was clear that they were coming with a bias and and those who opted not to be interviewed just chose not to do it. No, this is this is very even handed. They really are performing very good investigative journalism. They're after the story and they're trying to get to the truth. And uh, so it's a little bit damning that that uh, those who are are uh, who say there is no such thing as chronic Lyme disease declined without exception to be interviewed for this film. So that's very troubling. Well, I I was just going to interject, Wade. One of the reasons could be that so often, as you were saying, documentaries are not even-handed. They do stack the deck. They do. And and so the skeptics of chronic Lyme disease might not have trusted the filmmakers. They might not have, but it's fascinating that it's it's 100% of them wouldn't go on the record. And, I, you know, when you see who they are, you realize that there are all kinds of other vested interests attached to them. There's no one out there who is just sort of in a position saying, well, there's no such thing, and I just have a position. They are attached to medical clinics. They are attached to pharmaceutical companies, they're attached to government agencies. There are all of these interests that hang on what they may or may not say. And that's where this gets really, really interesting. The father with the with the daughter who who is just so devastated by this, this family, I mean, their story is just crippling. Uh, th- it, it, he records a conversation that he had with someone from the CDC. And it's not a pretty conversation. The CDC is is really trying to talk him down from being so public about his claims because it's making them look bad. And at one point, the woman from the CDC even says, you know, I didn't make this call to be yelled at. And he says I, that you have nothing to say to me. There's nothing that I, you can say to me that, that, that will in any way help my life. I know why you're calling and it's all self-serving. You're calling to help you, not to help me. And where that story goes ultimately is, is very touching and very affirming because there are revelations that come out in the film, too. Uh, how, it, how it compares to COVID is also a very interesting thing. You know, Lyme disease is bacterial, not viral. But there are certain areas in which the way it was treated. You know, there was a vaccine for Lyme disease that was so that was had such horrible side effects that they pulled it from the market. Hasn't been one for decades. What is it, like 20 Mm -hmm. years, Tim? Like Mm -hmm. 20 years. And they're hoping for more, you know, more uh, treatments soon. So, I mean, a lot of that will will get tied up in the COVID conversation. People are going to say, well, what about this and that? Even though it is apples and oranges, 
You know, it's going to make people draw some some analogies. The Quiet Epidemic is the documentary about chronic Lyme disease. It's unrated. It's at Lemley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. Shotgun Wedding, a romantic uh, comedy action film with Jennifer Lopez, Josh Dumel, Jennifer Coolidge, Lenny Kravitz, Sonia Braga, Cheech Marin. Boy, what a cast. Uh, Jason Moore, the director, Mark Hammer, the screenwriter. Wait, what did you think of Shotgun? Shotgun wedding. There, you know, with when Jennifer Lopez made her big comeback recently, we were all watching that and thinking she's such a good actress. Why did we ever kind of give up on her career to begin with? This reminded me why. Because she was making some of the poorest choices imaginable. It's not a bad film, but it's a film that kind of belongs to about 1996, maybe. <laughs> 1986. You know, sort of maybe 1986. <laughs> it, you know, she and Josh Duhamel are getting married. You know, Lenny Kravitz is very funny as her ex, the one who's very intimidating to Josh Duhamel. Uh, and uh, then for some reason, their, their wedding in the Philippines is hijacked by terrorists. I, <laughs> And then, it, and then it kind of turns into this romancing the stone sort of thing. I, I just, I, you know, the only thing that's re- that I really enjoyed about this is how shockingly, gorgeously, amazingly ageless. Nothing else about this movie matters. Everything you just said is completely <laughs> irrelevant. Who cares? I, this, this, this movie's terrible. I do not care at all. Jennifer Lopez is extraordinary outlandish with just how fine she is and she makes it she just she, there's a scene in this movie oh my gosh <laughs> I, we know i'm not you know, i'm not even gonna, and but she does it on purpose and i'm like jennifer jennifer and, but she, she's like look i can't help it it's just the way this is this movie beat for beat duplicates sandra bullock had a movie called lost city yeah uh, i remember that yeah it's literally the same movie they might be in the exact same place on an island the wedding goes <laughs> instead of instead of uh, brad pitt it's lenny kravitz but it's the same movie almost exactly it's terrible except that it's really funny cheech and jennifer coolidge they just i mean it's just dumb yeah, I don't even know how it ends. What happens? <laughs> don't tell us. You'll spoil it. I don't remember how it ends at all, but I do remember that scene with Jennifer. <laughs> Shotgun Wedding, a romantic action comedy. Uh, it's directed by Jason Moore, rated R, streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Infinity Pool from writer-director Brandon Cronenberg, uh, and he's, of course, second generation of filmmaker. Alexander Skarsgård stars with Mia Goth and Cleopatra Coleman. Infinity Pool. Tim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say something about the apple not falling far from the tree, but this apple might actually still be on the tree. He, he, he makes all the exact same creepy, gory, nasty movies that his daddy made, uh, only he does them his way. He made one called Possessor that I talked about on the show not too terribly long ago, that happened to star, it was pretty good, happened to star Andrea Riseborough. Uh, uh, who you know just got nominated? Just for nominated Academy for best actress. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so that and then this. So this is about these people who go to this sort of unnamed uh, island paradise in this nation. This is a terrible nation where the laws are draconian and the people are all criminals. But there's this resort behind which rich people can go and have a really, really lovely time. But don't go outside the resort. If something happens, you're going to be in trouble. I'm sure they'll be safe. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> they go outside and something happens. You're in trouble. But this is what the rich people can do. If you go out there and something happens happens you can have a duplicate made of yourself and your duplicate can pay for the crime uh, of whatever you did uh stars guard he kills a kid accident in a car he gets a duplicate made of himself here's what happens though your duplicate is going to be executed and you have to watch 
you have to watch. And then what comes from all of that? It, you know, it's creepy, it's gory, it's nasty. It wants to say something about society. Yeah, I was uh, wondering what the allegory is. It, it, that- it, it's trying. It's trying. It doesn't get there. It's just, it's just creepy and, 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 and gory and nasty, just like Daddy's films. So, good boy. All right. Uh, the son of David Cronenberg, Brandon Cronenberg, writer-director of Infinity Pool. The film's rated R. It's in wide release. Uh, the French romantic thriller Compromat. Uh, is directed by Jerome Salle, uh, and he co-wrote the screenplay. Wait, what'd you think of Compromat? I thought it was terrific. I think this is a, and, and it's a true story, too. I mean, it has that Jean le Carré uh, veneer to it, so it's very easy to think, oh, they cooked this up, you know, in the in the, the Ukraine-Putin war era, you know, let's kind of tell this story. But this is this actually happened. So in, in 2017, there was a, a French um, diplomat named Yuan Barbaro who actually was arrested. He was doing cultural exchange stuff in, in Russia, and he was arrested because the message apparently was not uh, was not appreciated by the intelligence agencies, the FSB, the new KGB. And he was arrested and uh, sentenced in a, to 15 years of hard labor. But he escaped because he he realized I'm not I you know I have an opportunity I'm not going to you know and and the story of his escape is this story it's a little bit fictionalized Gilles Lelouch is uh, you know we can call him the French Liam Neeson a little bit he has that quality that really uh, that intensity but that vulnerability at the same time uh but precise, the beats of what happens here how this otherwise well-meaning diplomat uh is suddenly arrested accused of molesting his daughter on totally trumped up charges how the FSB has pulled all the strings to to uh, you know put the put the screws to him and how he actually manages to escape from Russia is really amazing and it actually happened. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the romantic thriller Compromat, uh, the film again directed by Jerome Sal Tim. Yeah, it, it, again, cultural things going on. He the the program that he puts on uh, has uh, homoerotic overtones to it, and one of the oligarchs whom he had uh, recruited to help him put on this program, you know, did not know that that was going to be in the ballet and and did not care for that. And he is the one that manipulates this whole situation. He gets charged with all of these things, and then. Uh, he has to make a run for it. He has to try to see how he can get. What's interesting, though, is this is not about taking down Russia, per se, Russia, horrible place, Russia. Everybody that helps him in this film is Russian. They're, they're, they're all saying, hey, man, <laughs> you better get the hell out of here. This is, this is what so this isn't about that. This is about the system and those who are in control and in power in the system. But it's not about the people themselves. And I appreciated that about the film. It, it, and I will say this, too. It's fascinating how it humanizes characters that we would otherwise be might otherwise be turned into these two dimensional villains. There is an FSB chief here who is hard and he's you know he looks like a bond villain he looks like a, like one of those russians that we had as bad guys in the 70s but they humanize him at a certain point because his son and his daughter-in-law factor into this there's a fa- interesting family dynamic here and and there's a moment where you almost feel sorry for this guy because you feel like he's a victim of circumstance as much as Gilles Lelouch's character is so it, it it gets a lot more nuanced than you would normally get in a very two-dimensional spy thriller mm. the film again the french romantic thriller Compromat. Uh, the film stars Gilles Lelouch, Joanna Coulig. Uh, the film is unrated. It's in French and Russian with English subtitles. And you can see it at Lemley's Glendale Theater. It's also available on demand. 
The Man in the Basement is a French thriller that stars Francois Clouzet. The film's directed by Philippe Legay and uh, is written by Mark Weitzman. The Man in the Basement, Tim. The Man in the Basement. Very interesting. So we have this this, this family, this lovely little French family, husband, uh, uh, a, a wife, and their teenage daughter. And they live in this lovely apartment building. And they and they own this cellar, a basement, a cellar, right? Apparently in France, and Wade will know more about this than me because he lived there, you can sell your cellar, your basement as, as a piece of property. Literally sell it, not rent it, but sell it. Wow. Uh, they, they, and, and they do. They sell it to this, to this older gentleman who, who needs some storage space and, and, and they come to find out that he isn't who he says he is. One thing that happens is he starts living in that cellar. Uh, and, and they, and so he, he goes and he, he finds out that this guy got fired from his teaching job as a history teacher because he's a Holocaust denier. Uh, and he's involved with a whole bunch of Holocaust deniers. And of course, they, this is a Jewish family. They don't want the Holocaust denier living in their cellar, but they sold it to him. So there's a situation here that involves a courtroom drama of sorts, them trying to, to wrest their property back. But the old man starts to talk to their young teenage daughter and he starts to get in her head. And this drives the father insane. So the man in the basement becomes a, a, a thriller about that. But it also becomes about that thing, that Holocaust denial and how easily that can be insinuated into somebody's mind. Well, the man in the basement uh, in French with English subtitles, it's unrated. It's at Lemley's Royal at their town center in Encino and in Aliso Viejo at the Regal Theater, the man in the basement. The romantic comedy Life Upside Down is written and directed by Cecilia Miniucci. Uh, the film stars Bob Odenkirk, Danny Houston, Rada Mitchell. Uh, Tim, what do you think of Life Upside Down? Well, this is one of those films made during uh, the early days of COVID, using COVID uh, as as a theme. So everybody's shooting wherever they're shooting on on, uh, on on iPhones and all that kind of stuff, and and people are having affairs. And it's mostly on these cameras. And look, these things are going to peter out soon. I think this might be close to one of the last ones, and that'll be good. All right. Life Upside Down, romantic comedy, unrated Limley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. Wade, you have a quick word on the documentary, The Mission, about uh, Latter-day Saints missionaries in Europe? Yeah, just a little bit. And I'm not, you know, I can't be objective here because that was my life 38 years ago. Uh, but it, it, uh, it, it's, it's destigmatizing, but it's not illuminating. There are sidebars to this story. You know, one of the, one of the sister missionaries has, has a gay brother. Uh, one of the elder missionaries is, is, suffers from mental illness. And those stories are not sufficiently explored. And I, I felt that was a, that was a shortcoming. The mission is unrated and it's available on demand, directed and written by Tanya Anderson. All right, coming up, I'll be talking with our John Horn just back from the Sundance Film Festival. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. So happy to be joined by our John Horn, who's recently back from the Sundance Film Festival. John, great to have you with us. Of course, you're doing interviews for your podcast, Retake, and some that will probably show up here on Film Week as well. But today we get to talk with you. How was Sundance this year? Was, was pretty much everybody back in person? Yeah, this is the first time the festival has been in person. It was virtual the last two years, so I hadn't been in since 2020. 
and nobody else had. Um, Everybody seemed to be back. You couldn't find a parking space, uh, which is the usual (laughs) joke about Park City. There's no place to park. Uh, Long lines into most of the movies. I was able to see everything I wanted to. Um, But yeah, it felt like uh, nothing had changed. But everything has, of course. Every everything had. Let's talk about some of the movies that you had a chance to see, uh, beginning with Shortcomings from director Randall Park. Shortcomings is a really interesting film because it starts with what looks like a scene from Crazy Rich Asians. And the lead character in the film spent the next five minutes talking about why he hates movies like Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, This is uh, written and directed by Randall. I'm sorry, directed. Directed by Randall Park, uh, based on a graphic novel of the same name. Um, it's a movie we don't typically see. And I, I spoke with Randall, and he, I think, sums up very clearly why it's different. To me, it is deeply an Asian American story, but it doesn't have any of those those markers of what an Asian American story usually has. Whether it be like stories centered on intergenerational conflict. Or, uh, um, you know, going back to the motherland to find oneself uh, or achieving the American dream, you know. And those stories are, are all great and important to me. And uh, I see myself in those stories. But this is really just hanging out in diners and restaurants and walking and talking and, and arguing. And, you know, it's it's those things that... I actually do every day, you know. (laughs) There's no scene of a grandmother uh, making dumplings. And also, this is true of a couple other films. This is a story about a romance. It doesn't have what I'll call a Hollywood ending. So it does feel very true to life. But again, it is characters who happen to be Asian going through these things. They're not defined by their ethnicity. And I thought it was a really good movie. Uh, Does it give you a good sense of the Bay Area? Also, good sense of place? I'll tell you how good it was. Uh, It's set in Berkeley mostly. And I said to Randall Park, I went to school in Berkeley. I said, I think I've been in that house where you shot the party scene. He goes, that was in New York. (laughs) I said, well, then you did a really good job. So, yes, it has a great sense of Berkeley. Fooled me. Shortcomings uh, that was screened at Sundance. And any word, uh, John, about whether we'll get a chance to see that? We will get a chance to see it. There are a number of movies that are up for acquisition. A lot of films go to Sundance without a distributor in place. Uh, A number of movies have been sold. It evolves slowly. Even if there's a big sale, you don't know exactly when the movie's going to come out. So shortcomings will be seen okay and i think we'll be seen in theaters which is oh. no small feat for yeah. a movie coming out of well i would bet many of these films we're talking about will have a chance to see them but only if we're subscribed to a streaming service or like 40 streaming services because there's some movies <laughs> well, that were picked up yeah. there's some movies that are picked up by streamers that i have to say i've never heard of but that doesn't mean i can't find them when the movies come out so another film uh, fair play written and directed by chloe dumont um and it's a dramatic thriller What's it about? Well, imagine you're a woman who works at a law firm. This happens to be set at a hedge fund. I'm, this is a real world example, and it's a bunch of guys, and they're be- being guys. They're you know being bros and maybe telling off collar jokes. And you have a choice as a woman. You can either laugh and kind of go along and swallow some part of your soul. Or you can be quiet and rebel and see if you're going to get any work from that firm. So that this is a story like that set in the world of high finance and a hedge fund. It's about a couple. They're not 
openly out as a couple because of fraternization rules. They both work at a hedge fund, both pretty successful, but she gets promoted. He doesn't. And bad things ensue. Uh, Chloe DeMont is the writer-director. It's her first feature, incredibly assured. But she talked about how the things in her own life kind of inspired this fictional story. I think that the reason why I wrote the story is because of how personal this was. And, you know, what what women kind of have to do to, to fight their way to the top. You know, or to fight their way just through their daily job. I think that women have to inflate themselves. Uh, to uh, survive in that kind of masculine environment and have to play more of like an alpha, lean into the alpha side to earn the respect of those kinds of men. Uh, They have to push down their femininity. Um, And so what I was interested in telling the story is that a woman who has to inflate herself in that way during the day to survive at work and then deflate herself at night to survive at home. Fair Play is the film we're talking about. Yeah, it's a really good film. Netflix bought this movie for $20 million, which is a huge purchase. Um, I think it's a really fascinating film. And the more the woman in this couple uh, succeeds, the more resentful her boyfriend uh, becomes. And he then starts to assume the worst things about her, that she must have slept her way to this job or flirted with the guys rather than just being competent at her job. So the very things that he loves about her, her ambition, her smarts, um, the fact that she's by social uh, definitions attractive become the things that he hates about her it's a fascinating movie wow fair play stars uh, phoebe uh Divinor and eddie marzen uh and again we'll be able to see that ultimately on netflix drift is set on a greek island cynthia arivo alia shawkat star anthony chen is the director tell us about drift drift is a very quiet film it's a kind of a classic sundance film it doesn't have what you would called a tremendous amount of narrative. Uh, Cynthia Revio uh, plays a character who has escaped uh, horrible civil war violence in Liberia. And we find out about that in Drips and Drags as the story unfolds, there's flashbacks to, you know, her past life. And Aaliyah Shawkat plays a tour guide who befriends her. You know, again, there's no happy ending to this story, but it's about uh, what it means to be somebody who has survived a civil war and has left her country, not because she wants to, like many immigrants, but because she has to. Um, it's a very well-made film. And Cynthia Revo uh, is both a tremendous actor and just owns this part it's one of those movies where you watch it and you don't doubt that it's actually a real character um it's beautifully made um and provocative in in a good way but also very difficult to watch because it deals with horrible uh violence and sexual violence that was committed um in in real life in liberia during its civil wars Drift uh, is written by Suzanne Farrell and Alexander Maxick. Uh, and that, uh, again, film with Sundance, which we're talking about with John Horn, who's host of the podcast Retake Just Back from Park City, Utah. Radical um, stars Eugenio Derbez. The film's written and directed by Christopher Zaya. Uh, it's uh, a Mexican uh, drama. What do you think of Radical, John? I thought it was really good. This is a movie that you've probably seen before in different tellings this stand and deliver you know uh mr holland's opus the teacher who comes into a classroom and works miracles um but this has a kind of a sundance uh, feel to it it's a spanish language film it's set in mexico it deals with um 
drug violence and people who are either, you know, or who are children who are tempted or have or pressured to become part of a, a drugs gang and they have to decide whether or not they're going to stay in school or do that. It feels very grounded in reality. And it also has a very, very good lead performance by Eugenio uh, as the teacher. Um, this is another movie. I mean, a lot of these films, they're going to come out when they're going to come out. I don't know, but uh, put a pin in it, Radical Drift, uh, Fair Play, and uh, Shortcomings. Put a pin in those at, at home, and when you hear about them, say, I heard about that movie. i got to go see it now. And apparently Radical is based on a, on an article that was yep. written about this, uh, this person. Again, in Spanish, we're going to continue with uh, John Horn as he tells us about the Sundance Film Festival. John, we got like 45 seconds, but just let's start on Magazine Dreams, the sports drama. Magazine Dreams is a story about a weightlifter. Uh, it's played by Jonathan Majors. You're going to be hearing a lot about Jonathan Majors in the uh, months and years ahead. He's an actor very much on the rise. He plays a bodybuilder. The amount of physical training he went through as an actor to become this character is unbelievable. But he doesn't succeed, and he can't figure out why he doesn't succeed. So it's really a story of frustration and struggle. Magazine Dreams, written and directed by Elijah Bynum. We have many more films to talk about with John Horn back from the Sundance Film Festival for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic in person in Park City, Utah. We'll continue in just one minute. It's Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle with our John Horn. You also hear him on the podcast Retake and many of the interviews that he did while in Park City, Utah, the Sundance Film Festival. You'll have a chance to hear on Retake as well as right here in the weeks to come on Film Week. John, one of the things notable about some of the directors these movies we're talking about is the diversity of those making the films. Yeah. So two things happened. I was in Park City at the Sundance Festival and the Oscar nominations came out. Five men were nominated for directing movies this year. Uh, there were a number of women. I would make the argument that Sarah Pauly should have been nominated for directing uh, Women Talking. You go up to Park City, Utah. Here are some of the numbers. 94 female filmmakers, 60 feature female filmmakers, 11 of the 12 documentary competition films made by women, eight of the 12 dramatic competition films made by women, people of color also incredibly well represented, women of color also incredibly well represented. Um, you don't see that in Hollywood. So this is kind of the Marvel multiverse uh the alternative Marvel universe where the normal rules of Hollywood do not apply, and it's great. I made it uh, kind of a point to see if I could do nothing uh, but interview people who weren't straight white men, and it wasn't hard. All right. <laughs> Cat Person is next up, uh, which is uh, a dramatic thriller. Amelia Jones, Nicholas Braun star, Susanna Fogel, the director. You might remember Amelia Jones. She had another Sundance movie. It was called Coda, won yeah, the Best Picture yeah, o- Oscar. I seem to remember that. Not quite as fun or nice a movie. This is about a college student who has a relationship with an older man. Uh, it's based on a uh, well-known short story. It doesn't end well. Um it is a very good performance by Amelia Jones. It's a disturbing film. Um, again, like many, like many Sundance movies, not a Hollywood ending, um, and certainly some very difficult material. It really does show that Amelia Jones and Coda, uh, 
is a very good and talented actor, and she has a lot of uh, you know great work ahead. Um, again, this is be a, another another movie you'll see soon. That it's based on the short story of the same name from the New Yorker. Michelle Ashford adapted it. Cat person we're talking about. Shown at Thun- some dance. Uh, this one I've heard quite a bit about. The comedy theater camp from Molly Gordon and Nick Lieberman. This is a pet project of Ben Platt. You might know him as the star of Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, he's been working with some friends about making this movie. Um, I'm going to cite a Christopher Guest film, Waiting for Guffman. Yes. And then another film that very few people have seen uh, starring Anna Kendrick called Camp, which was about a theater camp. This is a very funny movie. I was a theater major in college. I did not go away to theater camp. Thank goodness. But a lot of my college acting classes came flashing back to me. Um, it's a very funny movie. This is another movie that I think uh, is about to get a distributor if it hasn't already. Um, a lot of fun. It really helps if you have been, have been a theater person, but it's not necessary. Theater Camp, uh, again, uh, starring Molly Gordon, who direct, <laughs> co-directed it, and Ben Platt. I'm laughing just thinking about it. It's yeah, a very funny well, movie. And I'm guessing this has significant <laughs> commercial potential. It does. It does. Um, in fact, Searchlight bought it. I, I should know that. But yes, uh, Searchlight, part of Disney, bought it. And uh, yeah, I think... Again, I think it'll be in theaters, and I think it's a very enjoyable film. The Disappearance of Cher Hyde, a documentary about um, the author of the bestseller, The Height Report. Uh, I'm old enough, John. I remember she was a big deal in the 70s, and this was quite a controversial book when published. Yeah, and she's such a fascinating character. She was also a model, um, and you know, her life story is really interesting, but what's really the most the kind of the center of the film and really disturbing is the way she was treated by men uh the open misogyny that was directed at her when she was talking about her book her books because she wrote many um you know people were uncomfortable talking about sex then still are now and she was very open about talking about you know female body parts um and men were so threatened by what she had to say um that they just directed an incredible amount of hate at her and it's very difficult to watch uh, including some journalists oddly enough one of the journalists who champions her is Geraldo Rivera back then he was he was maybe on the the right side of uh, of history but it was it's a very interesting film about her work and really about how society couldn't deal with it um fascinating film and Shara Height is no longer alive but her legacy is rich and this is a very interesting movie it says a lot more about ourselves than it does about Shara Height and Nicole Noonham is the uh, director of The Disappearance of Shara Height uh, the pod generation sci-fi film also starring Amelia Clark Sophie Barthes is the uh, writer director this is a sci-fi movie. I mean, it's fascinating that you can have an independently produced sci-fi movie. Um, I will say in the future, and this could be 20 or 30 years in the future, it's good news. Podcasts have survived. <laughs> I don't know what else has. You know, there's, there's robots that make your food and there's a online, uh, sorry, a virtual shrink. Um, so uh, what this movie is really about is about the commodification of birth. There is a 
option in the future where you don't necessarily have to carry a baby in your womb. If you're a woman, you can have a pod that is, you know, standalone pod. You can bring it home. You can put it on your coffee table. Your husband can take it around. Um, and there are there is a company that sells these pods, and it's like a... I don't know what the equivalent would be. It's kind of like an Apple thing, and you can only go back to the Apple store to get it repaired, and they hook you in with a contract. Maybe it's more like a cable TV deal or a gym membership. It has a lot to say about about how we look at our bodies and about birth and about women's control over their own bodies. It could be a thriller. It could be really dark, and it's not. That is something that I think is really interesting about this film. Uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's and to see a low budget movie with kind of futuristic things is is well, quite is, impressive. Is, is it uh, semi comedic? Would you say? Yes, it is. It is, and it and it gets to a point. But so much of it is based on on real things. Not that we have. Well, according to the filmmaker, there are virtual shrinks, and they were tested at Stanford University, and the students there. Like them more than real shrinks, but that's why they didn't go to UC Berkeley, I guess. That's why they're at Stanford. The Bod <laughs> said as a, as a uh, cow man. Uh, the Bod Generation uh, is the film, and uh, we should talk about the horror thriller Birth Rebirth shown at Sundance. This uh, directed and co-written by Laura Moss. This is a movie that gave me nightmares. This is a story about... Was this a, one of the midnight screenings, yes, John? Okay. It's about, it's about a woman whose daughter... Um, well, like this is not really a spoiler. It happens the first 15 minutes her, who, whose daughter dies and yet she might not be dead. Um, and the way that she might be kept alive is through, uh, let's just say important things in a woman's body that you might collect through amniocentesis. Um, it is really scary as a parent, as any person who has been in a room where an amniocentesis is done and you know it's pretty safe but there's always a risk that you could lose a baby i was under my chair for those scenes um it's really disturbing um it's it's an imperfect movie but uh midnight screening material exactly <laughs> if you if you want to get scared this is both scary and really disturbing uh so, and that, birth, again, that, that's going to come out. Birth, rebirth from Laura Moss. John, thank you so much for sh- filling us in on all the films that you saw in Sundance. We'll look forward to the interviews with filmmakers and actors that will be part of your podcast retake. Yeah, and maybe we'll be talking about these movies come Academy Awards a year from now. That sounds good. Retake, by the way, available at LAS.com or wherever you get your podcasts. A reminder, our 21st Annual Film Week Academy Awards preview at the historic Orpheum Theater downtown LA Sunday afternoon March 5th tickets at las.com slash events have a great weekend support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge and for a contentious election year Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic Latino, Latina, Latinx Latin Vote. Tickets at Theatricum.com 